0: my solitude, my everything, my beloved, my gleaming moon, my companion, my intimate, my all, lord of beauties, my sultan, my life's essence and span, my sip from the river of paradise, my eden, my springtime, my bright joy, my secret, my idol, my laughing rose, my happiness, my pleasure, lantern in my gathering, my luminous star, my candle, my oranges, bitter and sweet, my pomegranate, the taper by my bed, my green plant, my sugar, my treasure in this world, my freedom from woe, my Potiphar, my Joseph, my existence, my pharaoh in the Egypt of the heart, my Istanbul, my Karaman, my lands of the Byzantines, my Bedakhstan, my Kipchak, Steps, my Baghdad, my Khorasan, if I die, my blood is on your head, so come to my aid, my non-Muslim, as if I were a eulogist at your door. I sing your praises. I wish you well. My heart filled with grief, my eyes with tears. I am your lover. You bring me joy. Poem written by Suleiman to Roxalana. Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 5.7 Roxelana from Sold Meat to Sultana. Apologies that this episode has come a week late. It took three years, but finally Covid caught up with me, which knocked me out for a good week or so. Feeling much better now, though, and raring to get back into the action. Last time, we saw a young woman captured and enslaved by marauding raiders, brought to the Ottoman capital, and sold to its sultan as a slave concubine. An awful fate, but hardly unheard of in this period and region. She caught the eye of Sultan Suleiman and kept it long enough to carry his son, but then defied convention by staying with him and having a load more children. Breaking with cultural norms rarely makes you friends, And today we'll see Roxelana pick a number of battles, including one literal fistfight to secure her position and ensure that she and her sons remained at the apex of the Ottoman Empire. But before we see Roxelana throw down, I'd like to thank all of my amazing patrons on Patreon who keep this show free for everyone forever. If you too would like to become one of my patrons, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter where we post maps, pictures and other bonus content from the episode. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. By becoming Sultan Suleiman's only concubine wife, Roxelana had essentially slammed the door shut on any potential future challenger. The harem was filled with hundreds of enslaved women all seeking to supplant her, but she had managed to put a stop to Suleiman's wandering eye. But while she would be the last woman Suleiman would pluck from his harem, she was not the first. Indeed, he had already had several sons with various concubines, but most of them had been carried off in a plague outbreak a few years back. Only one of them survived, Mustafa. His mother, Mahidevran, had followed a very similar path to Roxelana. She too had been captured, enslaved and sold to the imperial harem a few years before she had arrived. Mahidevran was in many ways the epitome of the concubine wife. She had one son and then dedicated her life to supporting him. She and he formed a close unit and followed the conventional path, unlike the precedent-shattering course charted by Roxolana. She would likely have thought little about the young Ruthenian when she arrived in the Hall of Maidens for the first time. The birth of her first son, too, would have aroused little concern – but her continued presence and the arrival of future children presented a very real challenge. Mustafa may have been Suleiman's eldest surviving child, but that guaranteed nothing, and Roxana's exalted station at the Sultan's side only made his position more tenuous. Both women were paranoid, but then again are you really paranoid when the other side really is out to get you? Roxelana was playing a very real Game of Thrones here. Mahidevran and her son represented a serious threat. She was the first Kadin, the sultan's principal concubine wife. He was, in the 1520s at least, his only son that was of age. Time was on Roxelana's side, but she needed to deal with this threat now. And the way she did it was quite brilliant. She picked a fight. The Venetian ambassador Bernardo Navigero relates what happened next in a report sent back to his city in 1526. He writes that, the sultan has two highly cherished women. One, a Circassian, the mother of Mustafa, the firstborn. The other, a Russian, so loved by his majesty that has never been in the Ottoman house a woman who has enjoyed greater authority. The Circassian understood that the Russian had pleased the sultan. Wherefore she insulted her with injurious words, and words escalating to deeds, scratched her all over her face and her clothing, saying, Traitor! Sold meat! Do you want to compete with me? A few days later, the sultan summoned the Russian for his pleasure. She did not let this opportunity pass, and angrily told the eunuch, who had been told to fetch her, that she was not worthy to come into the presence of the sultan, because being sold meat, and being almost bald, she recognised that she would offend the majesty of such a sultan by coming before him. These words were related to the sultan, and induced an even greater desire in him to have her come to him, to understand why she would not come, and why she had sent him such a message she told him what had happened with Mustafa's mother, accompanying her words with tears and showing the sultan her face, which still bore the scratches and how her hair had been pulled out. The angry sultan sent for the circassian and asked her if what the other woman said was true. She responded that it was, and that she had done no less than what she had deserved. She believed that all women should yield to her, since she had been in the service of his majesty first. These words inflamed the sultan even more for the reason that he no longer wanted her and he gave all his love to the other. This was not the first time that Roxelana had used rather dramatic tactics to get her own way. But this, this was her masterstroke. She managed to manipulate her rival using her pride against her. Instead of fighting back against her attack, she absorbed the blows and undoubtedly played up the extent of her injuries. The harem was a breeding ground of Machiavellian politics, one which explicitly rewarded those that used guile and scheming to get one up on their fellow concubines. But this infighting had to take place behind closed doors, and could not be allowed to inhibit the desires and activities of the sultan. By monopolising his attention, Roxana had pulled up the ladder she had climbed, and now she had caught up with the only woman that had achieved a higher rung and pulled her off, all while appearing as the innocent victim. Like I said, brilliant. Mahidevran and her son would stick around for a few more years before being dispatched to Manisa where Mustafa was appointed as governor. But don't worry, we will see them again later. The only woman now ahead of Roxelana in the palace hierarchy was the sultan's mother, Hafsa. Her position could not be toppled, but she was also quite old. Time, again, was on Roksalana's side. She just had to wait the woman out. In 1534, Roksalana got her wish when Hafsa died. This was a symbolic changing of the guard, in more ways than one. Hafsa and Roksalana again had had similar backgrounds and followed similar paths to Istanbul but while the late Hafsa had been the archetypal Ottoman royal mother of old, Roxelana represented a new way of doing things. While Hafsa was alive, she was the family elder. Elevating Roxelana too high would be seen as an insult. But with her now gone, it was time for Suleiman to push his lover to the moon. Her circumstances changed significantly and almost instantly. Within months of his mother's death, Suleiman freed Roxelana. Usually, an enslaved concubine was freed only after her master's death. By doing so while he was still alive, Suleiman was shattering tradition for Roxelana, and they weren't done yet. Because next, they got married. It's hard to overstate just how shocking an act this was. Ottoman sultans did not typically get married, they had no need for it. The concubine system was the preferred way of producing heirs, and what marriages did occur tended to be diplomatic unions with princesses from other nations. The last Ottoman sultan to wed was Bayezid I, who married a Serbian princess in the late 14th century. This means that no one alive had ever seen a sultan marry anyone, much less an enslaved woman from his own harem. The ceremony itself was a very muted affair. Indeed, the bride and groom were not even present. Instead, the contract of marriage was signed by proxies. This was pretty typical for Islamic marriages of the time. The public celebration of the marriage usually took place after the legal ceremony had happened. In this case, though, there would be a bit of a gap. Almost two years, in fact. The ink was barely dry on the marriage contract when Suleiman took off to campaign in Persia. Indeed, the timing of this was not by accident. I won't be talking much about Suleiman's military adventures during this series, but they were numerous and took place across a vast tract of territory, from Yemen to Armenia and Algeria to the gates of Vienna. He even sent expeditions as far away as the Dutch East Indies, and his naval forces battled the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean. During his reign, he would expand the Ottoman Empire in multiple directions, conquering vast tracts of territory that today lie in Hungary, Ukraine, and Iraq, among others. Fighting these wars was, of course, a dangerous business. Death was all around him, and he and Roxelana did everything in their power to ensure that, should the worst happen, she and the children would be protected. This was uncharted territory, a strange new world, the rules for which had not yet been written or agreed upon. In the words of Roxana's biographer Leslie Pierce, quote, "What the marriage accomplished was to legitimate this concubine's maverick position as the mother of all the children of Suleiman's sultanate, and to imbue her stature with an aura of majesty." So there were solid political and dynastic reasons for the match that made sense for both Roxana and Suleiman. But there is another very good reason why Roxolana would have wanted it. She was no longer enslaved. She was free. Indeed, some rumours circulated that she had withheld sex from Solomon until he made her his wife. This was a tactic that had been used by many a skilful mistress looking to be made a wife, Anne Boleyn being possibly the most famous example. But I'm not entirely convinced by this theory. It's a lovely story, one very attractive to us in a modern world looking for historical stories of female empowerment. But let's not forget the power dynamic at place here. He was a sultan, an emperor, and she was his slave. Beyond a certain point, her wishes didn't matter a whole lot. The truth is probably more subtle. Roxelana wanted her freedom, she wanted the majesty of queenship. Suleiman wanted a stable succession. All of these things could be accomplished with this revolutionary act of marriage. And that is why it happened, and why it did so when it did. Of course, the marriage was not widely publicised at first. It was only known to a select group of councillors and officials. This is because the marriage meant that Roxolana would move from the old palace, the traditional home of the harem, and the sultan's concubines, to the new palace, the seat of government. With her came her eldest son, Mehmed, who was clearly being groomed to be the heir presumptive to the empire. While Suleiman was away fighting the Persians, Mehmed would be given a crash course in government, and be put in just the right place should the worst happen. And by his side was his mother, offering her advice and counsel, it was pretty much the only traditional thing about Roxolana. Just like the imperial concubines of the past, she was her son's strength, stay, and support. But she would do so as the sole consort of the Sultan. In her husband's absence, Roxolana built a household for herself more befitting of a Western queen than an Eastern consort. The Venetian ambassador described it thusly quote, The chambers of the Sultana are most splendid. With chapels, baths, gardens, and other amenities, not only for herself, but for her damsels as well, of which she keeps as many as 100. Once an almost exclusively male establishment, the new palace now had a woman's wing with Roxelana at its head, served by a household of female attendants and officials. Women were now at the heart of Ottoman government. Through Roxelana, they now had a voice. On the 8th of January 1536, Suleiman returned a conquering hero from his war in Persia. Baghdad had been taken along with territory in the Caucasus. Such a triumph required extensive celebration, and all of Istanbul rejoiced in the glory of the empire and its sultan. This made it the opportune time for Suleiman and Roxana to drop the bombshell that they were now married. This was an ultimate bit of trash day political management, announcing something potentially controversial at a time when no one would notice or have time to much care about it. It also allowed an opportunity for Roxana to be shown off in her new role as Sultana. It was a fait accompli, the deed was done. While some of the diplomatic corps already knew about the wedding, it did catch some off guard, including one banker from Genoa. He wrote, quote, This week there has occurred in the city a most extraordinary event, one absolutely unprecedented in the history of the sultans. Suleiman has taken to himself as his empress a slave woman from Russia, amid much rejoicing. The ceremony took place in the Seraglio, and the festivities surpassed anything we have ever witnessed. There is great talk about the marriage, and none can say what it means. So clearly the marriage did cause quite a stir. But he then goes on to show why it went down without as much controversy as one might expect. Quote, There was a public procession, gifts exchanged, and at night all the main streets are gaily illuminated, and there is much music and feasting. A platform put up in the Hippodrome allowed Roxolana and the court to take in a tournament of knights and a long procession of wild beasts with giraffes so tall that their necks reached the sky. In other words, everyone was having way too much fun to get too mad about the elevation of Ruxilana from the harem to the sultana's throne. Now that she was a sultana, Roxolana was a whole new woman. She was now a venerable figure with an exalted stature, and part of that meant an imperial seclusion. She had hardly been a public figure before, but she had been a face familiar to most people in her residence at least. But now she withdrew even further, making herself visible to only a very select group of people, which included her husband. Her steward and a group of eunuchs assigned to her household. That was it. This secrecy bred exclusivity. It made her a figure of mystique, of mystery, and those that attended upon her, that saw her, were instantly elevated in status. These were the strategies of Ottoman sultans for centuries, and now the Roxalana was using them to her own advantage. Roxalana was now a figure of some power and influence. But she was not alone in having Suleiman's ear. Indeed, perhaps the most important person in the empire, besides the Sultan, of course, was his Grand Vizier, Ibrahim Pasha. The Grand Vizier was essentially the Sultan's chief minister. He was the man who got things done, and Ibrahim was given a broad remit. One ambassador noted that he, quote, does everything, and whatever he wants is done, which is basically the platonic ideal of an official. Everything from mundane administration to appointments and receiving ambassadors crossed his desk. But most importantly, he was the gatekeeper. He decided what and who was able to get the sultan's attention. And as the sultan was, for the most part, a secluded figure, Ibrahim was also the public face of his rule. If you wanted to get to Suleiman, you had to go through him. According to one foreign ambassador, At first everyone hated the Pasha, but now that they have seen how much the Sultan loves him, they try to become friendly with him. He too had been enslaved and had entered Suleiman's service while he was still the Crown Prince. They had known each other for a very long time. Throughout his career, he had amassed a massive amount of wealth, power, and influence. He possessed over 1500 slaves and lived life on a scale of splendor so grand it was not far off that of the sultan this made him a potential threat to roxalana and she was well aware of it we have a letter from roxalana to her husband in which she wrote quote, "i am angry at the pasha god willing if it becomes possible to speak in person it will be heard" frustratingly fragments like this are all we know of their relationship Roxalina's seclusion was pretty tight; very little came out. But we do know that Ibrahim was also close with Mahidevran and Mustafa, and this spelled trouble. Although Roxana had managed to exile her rival and her husband's eldest son from Istanbul, they still represented a potential threat. And if they had the support of the Grand Vizier, then her position in a potential succession dispute would be significantly weakened. She was not the only person opposed to Ibrahim that had an axe to grind with the Grand Vizier. During the Persian War, he had made tactical mistakes that led to military defeats and discontent among the rank and file. He had executed the royal treasurer on very spurious charges, and was acting as if the law and long-established custom were but a minor inconvenience to him. He also angered some through his disdain for Islam. Like Roxelana, Ibrahim was brought up as a Christian and forcibly converted when he was enslaved. Yet while Roxelana embraced her new faith, Ibrahim made little secret of his dislike of it, and spent more time than was prudent with Christians, especially while on foreign trips. On the morning of the 16th of March, 1536, the quiet of the new palace was shattered. Ibrahim's lifeless corpse was discovered in his room and it didn't take Hercule Poirot to work out that it wasn't natural causes. Torn clothes, blood on the walls, the unmistakable rope burns around his neck, the fact that it was the Ides of March. It was quite clear that Ibrahim had put up a good fight, but had ultimately succumbed to a murderous attack. The palace quickly closed ranks over this incident. There was no investigation, nor was anyone ever held accountable for the murder. It was clearly a hit, ordered by the sultan, on his own right-hand man. But why? Perhaps he had accumulated too much power and influence for the sultan's liking. Maybe he blamed him for some of the difficulties suffered during the Persian campaign. Did he think him a traitor, passing state secrets to a foreign power? All of these have been suggested, but the majority of historians that I have read point the finger at Roxelana. She had forced her rival Mahidevran out and made herself sultana. Now she had removed the only man with a close enough relationship with her husband to threaten her. It certainly makes sense in a Machiavellian way, and there is no doubt that his death benefited her greatly. But it's worth noting that Ibrahim had many enemies. Not just Roxelana. He was seen as arrogant and power-hungry and had angered many with his contempt of Islam. It would not have been only she that demanded the death of the Grand Vizier. Yet perhaps the best evidence of Roxelana's involvement in the plot comes in what happened next, for Ibrahim was not replaced. Other Grand Viziers would be appointed, but none of them, no one man, would ever amass so much power, nor come so close to the Sultan for the rest of his reign. He would have no real male favourites again, no confidence that he brought into his inner circle. Historians of Suleiman note that he liked to place his trust in a vanishingly small number of people. He didn't let many people in, but those he did were invited deep into the inner sanctum. Ibrahim was trusted by Suleiman above all others, and the two developed an intimacy that raised comment and concern. Indeed, one of his enemies referred to him as the Sultan's Whore. This has led some to say that Roxlana didn't have Ibrahim killed for political reasons, Instead, it was a crime of passion, an act of a jealous, jilted wife whose husband was lusting for a younger man. Though this does seem a little melodramatic for me. There is little doubting Suleiman's love and passion for Roxolana. He had upended centuries of tradition to make her his wife. This didn't mean he couldn't also love Ibrahim, of course, but I think Roxolana's main gripe with the Grand Vizier was political and not personal. There is no convincing contemporary evidence. All we have is speculation. But in these cases, it's always worth looking at who benefited most. There is no doubt in this case, it was Roxolana. With these moves, she had established herself alone as the most powerful person with the ear of the sultan. Now it was time to make her mark in a more physical and tangible way. She had had no coronation. She was not paraded in public for her to get her name out, she needed to build. While founding religious buildings and funding philanthropic works was common among Western queens, it was practically unheard of in the Ottoman Empire. Indeed, no building in Istanbul at the time was explicitly named for a woman. As with many things, Roxlana was about to shatter a glass ceiling. The first of these was one of the most consequential, the Haseki Mosque. Haseki meant favourite, and was one of the names widely associated with Ruxellano. This was built outside of the city centre, and was part of a wider complex which included schools, a hospital, a drinking fountain, and a soup kitchen. She chose this location because it was an area with a distinctly female character. It already contained the women's market, and this new mosque quickly became a centre for female entrepreneurship and education. And of course, investment and attention on this scale bred further development and employment opportunities, reinvigorating a part of the city that had been in decline. She was intimately involved in the construction of this complex and ran it personally as its supervisor for the rest of her life. As in the palace, she also employed women to key positions in its administration, a very unusual move for the time. This would not be her last foundation, nor would her largesse be confined to Istanbul. She built hostels for pilgrims in the great holy cities of Mecca and Medina, and other mosques in Adrianople and Ankara, as well as a big complex in Jerusalem, which included a mosque, hostel, and housing for pious Muslims who wished to stay in the city for lengthy religious contemplation, as well as a bakery and a soup kitchen, which apparently feed over 400 needy people twice a day. And it wasn't all charity and religion either, Near the Grand Mosque of Hagia Sophia stands the Hurem Sultan bathhouse, which was commissioned by Roxolana. Hurem is another name associated with her. It was the one she was given when she entered the harem. This was, and still is, a magnificent bathhouse situated on an ancient site that had been used for baths since Roman times. Giving back was, and is, a crucial part of the Islamic faith. It is one of the five pillars, and generous endowment and charitable giving were fairly ubiquitous amongst the Ottoman upper class. But what made Roxelana different was the scale of her beneficence and the fact that it was conspicuously her that was doing it. Her money, her work, and her name. She did it all and was determined to get the credit. This was all funded, of course, from the heaps of money her husband had given her, but once again, it comes back to their wedding, because the lion's share of her fortune came from her diary and the annual stipend that was agreed upon when she married him. Indeed, this was an unusual situation where the husband, in effect, paid a dowry to his wife rather than the other way around. Everything comes back to that wedding, that one defining moment where Roxelana broke from the past and forged a new future, both for herself and the Ottoman Empire.